Photography is often called the universal hobby. It is a means of creative expression within the reach of people in all walks of life, and it speaks a language that everyone can understand. What happens when we take a photograph? What happens when we capture light on paper, in emulsion, or in pixels and look across a gulf of time at these fragments of the past? What gets in the frame and what lies just beyond it? If, as John Berger notes, photographs bear witness to a human choice being exercised in a certain situation, then what can photographs tell us about the choices we make and why we make them? From the Stonehill College English Department, in conjunction with the Digital Humanities and Creative Writing Programs, it's the Electro Library. A podcast, a literary neural network, a philosophical space-time remix, a kaleidoscope of consciousness on electromagnetic waves. Each episode explores a single theme across time, cultures, and disciplines. The Electro Library, a cabinet of curiosities for your ears. Episode 3, Photography. The camera lens is a mechanical eye, seeing everything and recording everything. It captures actions that will never again be repeated. People were stunned when they heard the two inventors had perfected a process that could capture an image on a silver plate. It is impossible for us to imagine today the universal confusion that greeted this invention. So accustomed have we become to the fact of photography, and so inured are we by now to its vulgarization. But not so then. There were some who, like stubborn cattle, refused to even believe that it was possible. What an obstinate race of ill-tempered beings we are, resisted by nature to anything that ruffles our ideas or interferes with our habits. As the sublime fills us with rioting confusion, so the unknown sends us spinning, shocking us like a slap in the face. The appearance of the daguerreotype was an event which therefore could not fail to excite considerable emotion. Exploding suddenly into existence, it surpassed all possible expectations, undermining beliefs, sweeping theories away. It appeared as it remains, the most brilliant star in the constellation of inventions that have already made of our still unfinished century a golden age of science. Photographs sprang to life, in fact, with such splendid haste that its rich profusion of blossoms appeared at once, fully formed. The idea rose complete from the human brain, the first induction becoming immediately the finished work. That public admiration was uncertain at first was to be expected. People were bewildered and frightened. The human animal needed time to make up its mind and confront the strange beast. The uneducated and the ignorant were not the only ones to hesitate before this peril. The lowliest to the most high, so the common saying goes, trembled before the daguerreotype. More than a few of our brilliant intellects shrank back, as if from a disease. To choose only from among the very highest, Balzac was one of those who could not rid himself of a certain uneasiness about the daguerreotype process. He finally pieced together his own explanation for it. I think I remember seeing this theory developed at great length in a little alcove somewhere in the immense edifice of his work. According to Balzac's theory, 
All physical bodies are made up entirely of layers of ghost-like images. An infinite number of leaf-like skins laid one on top of the other. Since Bazak believed man was incapable of making something material from an apparition, from something impalpable, that is, creating something from nothing, he concluded that every time someone had his photograph taken, one of the spectral layers was removed from the body and transferred to the photograph. Repeated exposure entailed the unavoidable loss of subsequent ghostly layers, that is, the very essence of life. Was each precious layer lost forever, or was the damage repaired through some more or less instantaneous process of rebirth? I would expect that a man like Balzac, having once set off down such a promising road, was not the sort to go halfway, and that he probably arrived at some conclusion on this point, but it was never brought up between us. As for Balzac's intense fear of the daguerreotype, was it sincere or effective? I, for one, believe it was sincere. Balzac had only to gain from his loss. His ample proportions, allowing him to squander his layers without a thought. Nada, Balzac and the Daguerreotype, from When I Was a Photographer, 1899. Were you ever daguerreotyped, O oh immortal man? And did you look with all vigor at the lens of the camera, or rather by the direction of the operator at the brass peg a little below it, to give the picture the full benefit of your expanded and flashing eye? And in your zeal not to blur the image, did you keep every finger in its place with such energy that your hands became clenched as for fight or despair? And in your resolution to keep your face still, did you feel every muscle becoming every moment more rigid, the brows contracted into a Tartarian frown, and the eyes fixed as they are fixed in a fit, in madness or in death? And when at last you are relieved of your dismal duties, did you find the curtain drawn perfectly, and the coat perfectly, and the hands true? clenched for combat and the shape of the face and head? But unhappily, the total expression escaped from the face, and you held the portrait of a mask instead of a man. Could you not, by grasping it very tight, hold the stream of a river or of a small brook and prevent it from flowing? Ralph Waldo Emerson, From Life in Boston, 1841. Italy during the 1970s was marked by violent political upheaval. The decade was punctuated by student and labor strikes, as well as bombings, kidnappings, and assassinations. Armed leftist revolutionaries like the Red Brigades, as well as neo-fascist groups, engaged in protracted political violence that lasted well into the 1980s. Umberto Eco, literary critic, novelist, and semiotician, was acutely aware of how this violence shaped the media landscape. His short newspaper article, entitled A Photograph, published in 1977, offers a prescient take on a recently published image that, as he saw it, 
recast perceptions of social protest at the time. A photograph by Umberto Eco. The readers of L'Espresso will recall the tape of the last minutes of Radio Alice, recorded as the police were hammering at the door. One thing that impressed many people was how the announcer, as he reported in a tense voice what was happening, tried to convey the situation by referring to a scene in a movie. There was undoubtedly something singular about an individual going through a fairly traumatic experience as if he were in a film. There can be only two interpretations. One is the traditional. Life is lived as a work of art. The other obliges us to reflect a bit further. It is the visual work, cinema, videotape, mural, comic strip, photograph, that is now part of our memory, which is quite different and seems to confirm a hypothesis already ventured, namely that the younger generations have absorbed as elements of their behavior a series of elements filtered through the mass media. To tell the truth, it isn't even necessary to talk about new generations. If you're barely middle-aged, you will have learned personally the extent to which experience, love, fear, or hope is filtered through already seen images. I leave it to the moralists to deplore this way of living by intermediate communication. We must only bear in mind that mankind has never done anything else. And before the technology of photography, it was other images drawn from pagan carvings or illuminated manuscripts of the apocalypse. We can foresee another objection, this time not from the cherishers of the tradition. Isn't it perhaps an unpleasant example of the ideology of scientific neutrality? The way when we are faced by active behavior and searing dramatic events, we always try again and again to analyze them, define them, interpret them, and dissect them? Can we define that which by definition eludes all defining? Well, we must have the courage to assert once more what we believe in. Today, more than ever, political news itself is marked, motivated, and abundantly nourished by the symbolic. Understanding the mechanisms of the symbolic in which we move means being political. Not understanding them leads to mistaken politics. Of course, it is also a mistake to reduce political and economic events to mere symbolic mechanisms, but it is equally wrong to ignore this dimension. And now to another event. These last months within that variegated and shifting experience that is called the movement, the men carrying 38 caliber pistols have emerged. From various quarters, the movement has been asked to denounce them as an alien body. Apparently, this demand for rejection encountered difficulties, and various elements came into play. Synthetically, we can say that many belonging to the movement didn't feel like labeling as outsiders forces that, even if they revealed themselves in unacceptable and tragically suicidal ways, seemed to express a reality of social protest that could not be denied. Basically, what was said was this. They are wrong, but they are part of a mass movement. And the debate was harsh, painful. Now, last week there occurred a kind of precipitation of all the elements of the debate previously suspended in uncertainty. Suddenly, and I say suddenly because decisive statements were issued in the space of a day, the gunmen were cut off. Why at that moment? Why not before? 
It's not enough to say that the violent riots in Milan made a deep impression on many people because similar events in Rome had also a profound effect. What happened that was new and different? We may venture a hypothesis, once again recalling that an explanation never explains everything, but becomes part of a landscape of explanations in reciprocal relationship. A photograph appeared. Many photographs have appeared, but this one made the rounds of all the papers. It was the photograph of a young man wearing a knitted ski mask, standing alone, in profile, in the middle of a street, legs apart, arms outstretched horizontally, with both hands grasping a pistol. Other forms can be seen in the background, but the photograph's structure is classical in its simplicity. The central figure, isolated, dominates it. If it is licit and it is necessary to make aesthetic observations in such cases, this is one of those photographs that will go down in history and will appear in a thousand books. The vicissitudes of our century have been summed up in a few exemplary photographs that have proved epoch-making. The unruly crowd pouring into the square during the ten days that shook the world, Robert Kappa's dying miliciano, the Marines planting the flag on Iwo Jima, the Vietnamese prisoner being executed with a shot in the temple, Che Guevara's tortured body on a plank in a barracks. Each of these images has become a myth and condensed numerous speeches. It has surpassed the individual circumstances that produced it. It no longer speaks to that single character or those characters, but expresses concepts. It is unique. But at the same time, it refers to other images that preceded it or that in imitation have followed it. Each of these photographs seems a film we have seen and refers to other films that had seen it. Sometimes it isn't a photograph, but a painting or a poster. What did the photograph of the Milanese gunman say? I believe it abruptly revealed, without the need for a lot of digressive speeches, something that had been circulating in a lot of talk but that words alone could not make people accept. That photograph didn't resemble any of the images which, for at least four generations, had been emblems of the idea of revolution. The collective element was missing. In a traumatic way, the figure of the lone hero returned here. And this lone hero was not the one familiar in revolutionary iconography, which, when it portrayed a man alone, always saw him as victim, sacrificial lamb, This individual hero, on the contrary, had the pose, the terrifying isolation of the tough guy of gangster movies, or the solitary gunman of the West, no longer dear to a generation who consider themselves metropolitan Indians and part of a mass movement. This image suggested other worlds, other figurative, narrative traditions that had nothing to do with the proletarian tradition, with the idea of popular revolt, of mass struggle. Suddenly, it inspired a syndrome of rejection. It came to express the following concept. Revolution is elsewhere, and even if it is possible, it doesn't proceed via this individual act. The photograph? For a civilization now accustomed to thinking in images was not the description of a single event, and in fact it makes no difference who the man was, nor does the photograph help in identifying him. It was an argument, and it worked. It is of no interest to know if it was posed, and therefore faked, whether it was the testimony of an act of conscious bravado, if it was the work of a professional photographer who gauged the moment, the light, the frame, or whether it virtually took itself, was snapped accidentally by unskilled and lucky hands. At the moment it appeared, 
its communicative career began. Once again, the political and the private have been marked by the plots of the symbolic, which, as always happens, has proved producer of reality. Meet the Swinger, the incredible new Polaroid land camera for 1995. It talks to you. Swing it up and take a look. Then turn the knob until it says yes, right in the viewfinder. Okay, you've got the right setting. Ten seconds later, you zip off a perfect black and white picture. The Swinger freezes action. It's always in focus. And it gives you beautiful close-ups. Incredible. Especially at 1995. Photography as a hobby can lead to photography as a career, and often does. But professional work calls for a lot more than just snapping pictures here and there. So I'm in the midst of a probable move, um, and I was thinking about it, and this will be the eighth or ninth time I've moved in 18 years. It's uh, probably an anxious moment for everyone, um, but I haven't been sleeping that well. Uh, not so much because I'm nervous about it, but I can't help dreaming about what it will be like, what the view might be as I stand in one room and look to the other, or how I might spend time in the backyard, the feeling of coming through the front door, like I'm trying to place myself before I even get there. I'm curious about how this anticipation is any different than a memory of a place, besides the fact you haven't been there yet. Both require you to place yourself where you are not. Both are sketchy in detail and informed more by emotion than fact. So does it really matter if your goal is to think of a place where you are not, whether you're looking forward in time or backward? To some degree, this is the question that motivates me to take pictures. When I moved from New Jersey to Colorado for college, I was confronted with a landscape that was so completely different in its logic that it forced me to somehow address the difference. And I don't think it's that unusual to define yourself or struggle to in the first year of college. That's probably a pretty common experience. Some people probably do it through their taste in music or clothes or friends. I'm sure it was the same for me, but I also wanted to literally place myself in this landscape. For me, that meant wandering around Colorado Springs taking pictures. And again, when I moved back east to Maine, and then to Boston, and then back to Maine, every photographic project was in some ways a direct response to those moves. What does the landscape look like here? What does my apartment feel like? If looking backwards and looking forward engage the same feelings, or at least inspire the same types of thoughts, then photographing for me is a recognition of being out of time and out of place. With my current move looming, I'm both excited and nervous about how it might inspire similar feelings. Photography is weird in a lot of ways, but its relationship to time may be the oddest quality. It is always suggestive of the present in its instantaneousness. It is an image about now, but it is gone as soon as you take it. 
In that way, it is constantly looking backwards, even if you post it to Instagram immediately. So it is a type of absence that promises a presence that can never be fulfilled. At the same time, it allows a viewer to be in a place and in a time that they are not and may never be. So it is a form of time travel, perhaps best illustrated by a snapshot of Marty's family in Back to the Future that disappears. If you buy the idea that memory and anticipation share a similar conceptual space, then looking at a photograph can inspire all sorts of confusing feelings. Nostalgia for a place you've never been, a time you've never been in, a sense that what is around you is now in the photograph, a memorial that hides the real surface underneath. The photograph is also weird because it suggests that it is the same thing as a memory, but it is way too detailed to be one. The inconsequential detail in the photograph is given as much weight as the primary subject. Your memories are much more selective and they incorporate your body, what it felt like to be in that moment. And yet, we keep expecting that feeling from a photograph and our dismayed white doesn't feel the same. The person we remember doesn't look quite right. The room looks smaller than I remember. A photograph inspires one to remember and is close enough to be confused for the memory itself but it isn't. If the act of remembering is similar to the act of anticipation, then the photograph can act as a catalyst for looking forward as much as it can for looking backward. This is where my latest work is attempting to go. In past projects, I've always looked at places out in the world, specific geographies. They were real places with real details to be observed. My latest works are images constructed in a studio for the benefit of being photographed. I'm using the image of Colorado's front range I have in my memory to construct tabletop landscapes in my studio. To look back on these landscapes is simultaneously an act of remembrance, nostalgia for a time and place, but also a way to bring these memories forward, to put them out in the world in a form that feels more accurate than simply going to Colorado and taking pictures. I don't have to mess with the details that are there, only the ones that are important to me. In that way, the series is much closer to a memory than the previous ones. Perhaps it has become more like painting in that sense. But then why do I photograph them? Why not paint? Because people still respond to them as if they are photographs, as if they must be showing something real, something honest. By taking away all those details in an effort to be more in line with my memories of the place, Viewers of the photographs then proceed to do all the work of filling those details back in for me. How a scratch on the surface of the studio must be a road, or that piece of dust must be a tree. It is as if the photographs want that confusion. They have to have just enough detail to be more than a memory, but something less than real experienced life. When you omit details, others fill them in. When you provide details, people filter them out. It is as if the medium and not the maker dictates how it wants to relate to reality. Then my job as the photographer is to help the medium continue to perplex. It's not really about self-expression as much as it, as it is pointing to where you want the viewer to begin, out in the world or in their head. In the end, everyone ends up in the same place, confused about where and when they are, feeling like they have been there, or where they are about to go, disoriented and comforted all at once.
love about this camera is that it allows you to capture the moment, every moment in life, that you stop and show this happened just then and here. All those moments are the precious moments. And because the Polaroid sonar one step focuses itself with sound waves, you can capture the moments you might have missed. And those are the moments we want to, to keep. Joanna Stein, but uh, in this piece that I wrote, I was Joanna McNaney, so that's my maiden name. Um, I sometimes use it with writing still, Joanna McNaney Stein, even though technically my middle name is not McNaney anymore. It was hard for me to give up the Irish Catholic name. And uh, so this is Clean Slate. I wrote Clean Slate in a graduate program at SUNY Brockport, which is in upstate slash western New York, and I wrote it for a class I was taking with Judith Kitchen, who passed away not too long ago. She was a great writer and editor, and she encouraged us to write about a photograph said just find a an old family photograph give this piece a beginning a middle and an end and I think this may have been my second draft so this is what I wrote in the photo my parents nestle on a square blue couch that looks about as comfortable as plywood they are not yet who they will be There are no rings on fingers, no wedding cake, no kids, no mess. In a few months, my father will be the valedictorian of their high school class and, by the looks of him, belongs in the cast of Revenge of the Nerds. His glasses are mason jars with thick black frames and his hair is parted halfway down the side of his head by his ear. Luckily, his sideburns give him a dorky kind of charm. He wears a light blue shirt with a black necktie, vest, and jacket. His brown glasses case is tucked into the jacket pocket. He is tall and extremely thin, with a long face, a crooked nose, and later in life his kid's dentist will compare his chin to Jay Leno's, but not yet. My mother is far too beautiful for him, and they both know it. She wears a short black skirt short enough to reveal the nude pantyhose lining on her thigh. But like a good Catholic girl, her arms are folded over each other and resting on her lap. Her brown hair is parted, smack down the middle, so long it covers both her breasts. Her legs are crossed and she smiles, facing in the direction of my father. This is before anything crazy happens. He doesn't look capable of getting as angry as he will but he will. And my mother, my mother is very beautiful, but her dark brown eyes conceal a deep sadness. Her father has just died and her smile is flawless. It doesn't seem as if she would spend her life passively smiling like that, but even when things get bad, she will. Thank you, Joanna. 
I know before we started recording, you mentioned that the circumstances have changed quite a lot since the time that you wrote this piece, the circumstances of your family and, and your own life. I wonder if you might say a little bit about what is different now and how you see things differently from your current vantage point. It's interesting. Yeah, the circumstances have changed quite a bit. Like I said, I think I was in my mid to later 20s when I wrote that, maybe around 27. And now I'm 42. And I, since then, lost my mother. She died of cancer, um, colon cancer, in 2012. So I'm coming up on the sixth anniversary of her death. So that's difficult. Um, as always around this time of year. And my father also, um, I've always consciously or subconsciously, I'm not sure, I've kept this piece from my father because I was worried that he might hear the word um, angry that I used to describe him more than any of the other descriptors. And... I didn't want him now to think that that's the only way that I see him or saw him. So that has always been difficult for me to, I guess, read that that part. Do you think you would ever consider sharing this piece with him now? I would share it with him now, I think. I have concerns, again, that he might feel mischaracterized um, when really there was a lot of love I received from him in childhood and throughout my early adulthood and I also think it's funny you know speaking about descriptors or you know adjectives my mother knew of this piece she enjoyed it her thought on it was well that's your interpretation of what happened which I always felt was a really healthy way to describe nonfiction this as as an interpretation so did she have an alternative interpretation oh she had many alternate interpretations and she was a storyteller so I I always feel like I relate to that film uh, which was a book, semi-autobiographical, I guess, Big Fish by Daniel Wallace. She had many stories. Um, she also was really flattered by being called beautiful in this piece, and um, that's what I remember more than anything. She was so excited to just have something in writing that was published that said she was beautiful so she didn't the other stuff really didn't um worry her have you looked at this photo again recently or since the story was published what's funny is i lost track of where the actual photo is and i have this very clear memory of it because of this piece and because it was shown to me uh, often as a child, 
and I have many more photos of them while they were dating prior to their marriage and in similar slightly posed uncomfortable positions so why did you choose this one in particular out of that series um i'm not exactly sure this picture in particular had always stuck with me for some reason it looked like they were a little bit uncomfortable um now i think what i would have included too is that what i remember in the picture is it was around christmas time and in the background there were some christmas decorations and i wish that i had included something about the holiday or the the fact that they must have been going out for some event around christmas what do you think that would have permitted you to say that's missing in the original i'm not sure i think i just wanted to include more of the details of the photograph i really zoomed in on my parents and i didn't look at the the rest of the scene as much and i i might have just wanted to write now a bit more about the details in the room are you aware of who it is that took the photo who's on the other side of the camera that's also a good question and that's something i wish that i had also investigated like as far as perspective is concerned in that if i had written a longer piece and i still have trouble writing long um pieces and i guess i would have really considered who took the picture my assumption is it was my maternal grandmother who took the photo um my dad seems pretty uncomfortable and they had you know a somewhat I, i don't know how would i describe their relationship uh you know he always referred to her by her first name his whole life it was never mom or it you know he he seemed they had somewhat of a mildly contentious relationship and i guess i would assume if it was at taken at his house and my paternal grandmother had taken it he might seem a little more relaxed you know it's extraordinary to think of how much is happening just beyond the frame all that emotion that family transformation yeah i i wonder about that too i assume it was uh my maternal grandmother who would be his future mother-in-law very shortly after the picture was taken and i know that she was also recently widowed my grandfather on my maternal side like i say in the story or in the essay he had just passed away he had leukemia he had just died and if this was the holidays too i know that he died in november and i'm forgetting the year um I want to say 69 or 70 and that my parents you know dated shortly after that and that my mother was really sad and that my grandmother was also struggling incredibly at that time is there another image of her or of them that you'd consider writing about in this way i would i think it might be interesting to try to 
do it again um, now. And there are a few more, like I said, in the same, around the same time period um, prior to their wedding. Recently, I read this um, at a faculty reading off campus we were having for our creative writing group or it's called a creative writing committee at our college we're trying to build an English major and so we have these get-togethers in the spirit of just trying to share with one another our work and um, I brought my daughter with me my daughter's almost three since she saw the microphone and wanted to come up on stage with me so I held her while I read this piece and I got very emotional thinking about my relationship to my parents now and my mother being gone and my father and I not speaking very much but still um, you know trying to repair maybe some old wounds did anyone take a photo of that event yes Someone did take a few photos. Someone mentioned to me, actually a a good friend of mine who I've known since undergraduate. His name is Evan and he's he's a Broadway performer and he's a great friend. He saw the photo from the live reading and I'm holding Nina and I told him about it. And he said, that's the picture that she's gonna look at and say, that's my mom and me. And I hadn't thought about it really until he said that. So now I imagine she might see that. I mean, I hope she would feel happy about it. And now before I bring back the spectacular Lily Yokoi, from New York, Judy Mee is going to tell us about the wonderful world of Cameraland. Well, Ed, all America is Cameraland, and it's yours just for the picture taking. Now, let me show you. To collect photographs is to collect the world. Photographs are perhaps the most mysterious of all the objects that make up and thicken the environment we recognize as modern. Photographs really are experience captured, and the camera is the ideal arm of consciousness in its acquisitive mood. To photograph is to appropriate the thing photographed. It means putting oneself into a certain relation to the world that feels like knowledge, and therefore like power. Photographs furnish evidence, something we hear about but doubt seems proven when we're shown a photograph of it. In one version of its utility, the camera incriminates, starting with their use by the Paris police in the murderous roundup of communards in June 1871, photographs became a useful tool of modern states in the surveillance and control of their increasingly mobile populations. In another version of its utility, the camera justifies a photograph passes for incontrovertible proof that a given thing happened. The picture may distort, but there is always a presumption that something exists or did exist, which is like what's in the picture. Recently, 
photography has become almost as widely practiced an amusement as sex and dancing, which means that, like every mass art form, photography is not practiced by most people as an art. It is mainly a social right, a defense against anxiety, and a tool of power. As photographs give people an imaginary possession of a past that is unreal, they also help people to take possession of space in which they are insecure. Thus, photography develops in tandem with one of the most characteristic of modern activities, tourism. For the first time in history, large numbers of people regularly travel out of their habitual environments for short periods of time. It seems positively unnatural to travel for pleasure without taking a camera along. Photographs will offer indisputable evidence that the trip was made, that the program was carried out, that fun was had. Photographs document sequences of consumption carried on outside the view of family, friends, neighbors. But dependence on the camera as the device that makes real what one is experiencing doesn't fade when people travel more. A way of certifying experience, taking photographs is also a way of refusing it by limiting experience to a search for the photogenic, by converting experience into an image, a souvenir. Travel becomes a strategy for accumulating photographs. Photography has become one of the principal devices for experiencing something, for giving an appearance of participation. This, in turn, makes it easy to feel that any event once underway, and whatever its moral character, should be allowed to complete itself, so that something else can be brought into the world, the photograph. Like sexual voyeurism, it is a way of at least tacitly, often explicitly, encouraging whatever is going on to keep on happening. To take a picture is to have an interest in things as they are, in the status quo remaining unchanged, at least for as long as it takes to get a good picture, to be in complicity with whatever makes a subject interesting, worth photographing, including when that is the interest, another person's pain. Susan Sontag from On Photography. New applications for photography are constantly being discovered, and new materials and tools are being produced. Just what place you might take in this growing industry depends on your abilities and inclination. But if you have a sincere interest in photographic work, it would be worthwhile to investigate the field carefully. Some phase of photography may become your life work. You've been listening to the Sound Images of the Electro Library, a production from Stonehill's Digital Lab. In this episode, we listened to Jared Green reading from the memoirs of Nadar, Chris Ives channeled the spirit of Ralph Waldo Emerson, Scott Cohen reflected on the Italian insurrections of the 1970s, and read from Umberto Eco's A Photograph. Adam Lampton meditated on moving memory and photographic practice. 
Joanna McNaney Stein read her story Clean Slate and spoke with Jared Green. Sutopa Dasgupta read from Susan Sontag's On Photography, and throughout we heard bits of old camera ads and the 1946 Holmes Burton instructional film Photography. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit theelectrolibrary.org.